Here's a story that ought to make the record books of medical science beam with joy. The story happened just a few weeks ago. Associated Press carried the story. Dateline, Albuquerque, New Mexico. I've got it right here. 16 years ago, listen to this. 16 years ago, 26-year-old Patricia White Bull was giving birth by cesarean section to her fourth child. All right, mama, you can identify with this. Everything was progressing smoothly until she threw a blood clot that was lodged in her lungs. They call it a pulmonary embolism. And she stopped breathing. The baby boy was successfully delivered, but unfortunately, by the time Patricia was resuscitated, she had suffered severe brain damage from the lack of oxygen. She was in a coma. The doctors were unable to bring her out of that catatonic state. The young husband and father, Mark Whitebull Sr., a computer programmer for the city of Albuquerque, already with three little girls and now a newborn boy, took up the vigil by his wife's side. But in spite of all that medical science can do, it was unable to bring her out of that vegetative state. Un unable to reverse it. She was unable to speak. She was unable to swallow, unable to move much at all. Eventually, Patricia had to be placed in a nursing home. After three years of that vigil, husband and father Mark made the decision to move the children back to the Standing Rock Sioux Reservation in South Dakota where he had family who could help in the rearing process. In a coma, Patricia remained in the Albuquerque nursing home. Sixteen, sixteen long years went by. Until ten weeks ago, nurses were in her room remaking her hospital nursing home bed. Maybe they were talking to her like, they're, you know, just keep talking and they're not getting any response. Maybe they were ignoring her. We don't know. But suddenly, whatever they were doing, suddenly Patricia blurted out, don't do that. You can, can you imagine the shock? <laughs> Those nurses, dumbfounded and then ecstatic. The whole floor is invited to crowd into that room as now a very much wide-awake Patricia White Bull sits before them. Husband and children are on the next plane down to Albuquerque talking about an emotional family reunion. I want you to think about it, Mama. 42-year-old now, wife and mother, practically, I'm telling you, she came back from the dead. There's no other way you can put it. She came back from the dead. Sixteen years later, for the first time, she lays eyes, the very first time, on the baby boy she was delivering when the lights went out. Look at that. You see her picture on the screen there. Can you believe it? I mean, Mama, what would you... Sixteen years, you've never seen your boy. What do you say? My, how you've grown. Wow. The boy has never known his mother in all his life. He now knows her. I love the Associated Press headline. Awake after 16 years, mom's catching up on life. Isn't that good? And what says her husband? His are the last words that the AP reporter included in the story. The reporter must have asked him a question, something like, you know, what's it like after 16 years without your wife to get her back? And the husband's last words, the last words in the report are these. If she recovers and she wants to reestablish a relationship with me, I'm here. Isn't that great? One of those stories that just warms the cockles of your heart. Hey, wait a minute, folks. You heard that story before. This isn't the first time you've read that story. 
How does the headline go to the story we've known all along? Woman asleep for years awakens and comes back to life. The story of the church, isn't it? <laughs> the church, church, also woman. Church, also asleep. Church, also awakened. Church, also given a chance to reestablish a relationship with the bridegroom. If she wants to, I'm here, the bridegroom says. I want to go back to that story about a woman. Women who slept. And a bridegroom who came in the midnight. Open your Bible with me, please, to the Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 25. A trilogy of final parables that Christ will speak before His death. Got to be important, these last three, save them till the end. Now look, I know you've heard the story. We just read it a moment ago. And so to kind of spiff it up a bit, give it a little bit of refreshment, I'd like to read the story to you. You can follow along in your translation. We're not putting any words on the screen, so you have to follow in your translation. Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 through 10. I'm going to read this from Eugene Peterson's The Message translation. Always get a little fresh vignette perspective, and so you'll, you'll enjoy this. God's kingdom is like ten young virgins who took oil lamps and went out to greet the bridegroom. Five were silly and five were smart. I like that. The silly virgins took lamps but no extra oil. The smart virgins took jars of oil to feed their lamps. The bridegroom didn't show up when they expected him, and they all fell asleep. In the middle of the night, someone yelled out, He's here! The bridegroom's here! Go out and greet him! The ten virgins got up and got their lamps ready. The silly virgins said to the smart ones, oh, Our lamps are going out. Lend us some of your oil. They answered, There might not be enough to go around. Go buy your own. They did. But while they were out buying oil, the bridegroom arrived. When everyone who was there to greet him had gone into the wedding feast, the door was locked. Much later, the other virgins, the silly ones, showed up and knocked on the door saying, Master, we're here. Let us in. He answered, Do I know you? I don't think I know you. So, Jesus concluded, stay alert. You have no idea when he might return. Ladies and gentlemen, let's cut to the chase. Right here, right now. Jesus is unequivocally clear. Before the bridegroom appears, all ten maidens, the wise and the foolish, the smart and the silly, all ten sleep. Isn't that true? Yeah, they all ten. All ten sleep. So let's put Matthew 25, 5 from the New Revised, my translation that I preach out of. As the bridegroom was delayed, all of them became drowsy and slept. I'll tell you what, folks, that, that verse deserves a muted hallelujah. Muted, because nobody wants to brag about falling asleep when you're supposed to stay awake. But hallelujah, because it is not a sin to become weary with the waiting and drowsy with the delay. Not a sin. All ten maidens fall asleep. So obviously, what separates the smart from the silly, the wise from the foolish, is not their slumber. By the way... All ten are waiting for the bridegroom. So you can call them Adventists. They're all waiting for the bridegroom. So that can't be what makes the difference. Not one of them is a hypocrite. Not one. So it can't be that some are hypocrites. No, no, no. What's the difference? Ah, what indicts the foolish who eventually become the lost is clearly their lack of preparation that is exhibited by their lack of oil. They ran out of oil. They did not take the time of preparation seriously. They are not ready when the bridegroom comes. Boom, the door closes. They're left out. 
Adventists left out. They were caught in good Middle Eastern fashion without oil reserves. I suppose if Jesus were retelling the story today, he'd talk about ten young co-eds, who over here in Lamson Hall maybe, who were driving their ten cars to a distant wedding. Don't ask me why they didn't carpool. They didn't. And because the journey was longer than they had expected, they all pulled over to the side of the road to sleep. Now, in, in, the, in company numbers, there's safety. But because the night was chilly, all ten left their engines running. But while it was still dark, they, are, they were awakened by someone in the, in the midnight shouting that the groom was on his way and that the wedding would be earlier than they had expected, which meant that they had to start driving now if they were going to make it. As five of the young women put their cars into gear and are preparing to drive away, lo and behold, in the darkness, there arose a great cry coming from the other five. Hey, hold it. We ran out of gas because we left our engines running. The five wives rolled down their windows and yelled back, Well, we left our engines running too, but we brought our five-gallon gas cans, and so we have just enough gas now to get us to the wedding. Can't give you any of our gas, or we wouldn't have any. You better try and hope you can find a gas station in the middle of the night somewhere. And so the five young wise women drove off into the night, arrived in time to meet the groom and go into the wedding. The five silly young women never did find a gas station open. And before the AAA could come and tow them to town or give them that gas, wedding was over. They missed it. No matter how the story is told, my friends, it pivots on a crucial, critical difference between the wise and the foolish, between the smart and the silly, as Peterson describes them. And here's the difference. It's the possession of the oil or the lack thereof. Preparation or the lack thereof. Those who have the oil are saved in the end. Those without the oil are lost at last. Period. The end. Story's over. That's it. You can argue with the story, but that's it. So the pressing question has got to be for all of us, what's this oil and how can I procure it? How can I make sure I have enough? Tell you what, oil in any language, any culture, any era is the fuel, isn't this true? The fuel that keeps the fire burning. It's the fuel that keeps the fire burning. It, it keeps the cars burning, the fire in the car. It's the fuel that kept the lamps burning. Every good Jew knew that the sacred oil is what kept the seven-branched candlestick burning brightly in the holy place of the sanctuary temple. No oil back then, no oil today, and the fire goes out. Which is precisely, by the way, Zechariah's point. Take a look at the, this prophecy, Zechariah chapter 4. Then I said to him, what are these two olive trees? Olive trees make oil on the right and the left of the lampstand. That's the sanctuary lampstand. And a second time I said to him, what are these two branches of the olive trees which pour out the oil through the two golden pipes? Now here's the punchline in the story. Verse 6, Zechariah 4. He said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by what? How's it go, folks? But by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Ladies and gentlemen, did you catch that? Spiritual engines run not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. And when the oil of the Holy Spirit is poured out on a praying church in the upper room on the day of Pentecost, it ignites that room. The oil becomes fuel. And what is seen? Fire. Fire. Tongues of fire over every praying Christian. Because where the Spirit is, there is fire. Now get this straight, my friends. No spirit, no oil, no fire. No fire, 
no power. No power, no victory. No victory, no salvation. Jesus' punchline to the story. Let's read it. Matthew 25. Take a look at it. Matthew 25, verses 11 and 12. Later the other bridesmaids came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. And how does he respond? But he replied, truly I tell you, I do not know you. Mark it well, my friends. It all hinges on the oil. The midnight oil. You see, my friends, the time has come for us to burn the midnight oil. Yeah, we, we have 102 nations represented here at Andrews University. I don't know if that, if that uh, cultural idiom has any meaning in your language at all, but I'll tell you what, when you say it in English, to burn the midnight oil, you are describing an intensification of effort that consumes the usual sleeping hours of the night with earnest activity. Let me assure you that in places like this university, we do it very well especially on weekends like this one. With final exams that begin on Sunday, we burn the midnight oil on Saturday. And by the way, that's Saturday night, not Saturday afternoon. To burn the midnight oil, we, we, we do that on the job. That project, that patient, that paper, that proposal that compels our earnest efforts, that consumes our sleepless hours to burn the midnight oil. We do it whenever the stakes are high. My friends, it is very clear in this biting parable, Christ is calling the church to arouse from her midnight slumber to burn the midnight oil. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to observe that this civilization is fast approaching her midnight hour morally, economically, spiritually, ecologically. You know, I think about the wanton destruction of human life, whether it's at the hands of a six-year-old handgun or the floods in Mozambique. You know, I was in Sydney, front page of the newspaper. Somebody said, hey, did you hear what happened in Michigan? I said, what do you mean what happened in Michigan? I went out and bought a paper. There it is, front page, six-year-old with a handgun. Of course, it's on the front page of Australia. Big news. Someone just sent this to me. I got this yesterday in my office. From the Tampa Tribune, speaking of the wanton destruction of human life. Ecologically, there's an organization called the World Watch Institute. Some of you are acquainted with this nonprofit environmental group. They come out every year with the State of the World. This is State of the World 2000. There's a short list of environmental problems that threaten the early 21st century. Human life. I'm not going to read this to you. Let me just read. Look, water scarcity, age. 23 million in Africa. The first continent to go to drop its median age of survival. The first time it's dropped for a continent. Climate and disease. Malnutrition, forest depletion, 14 million hectares every year cut down and burn. That's, that's 2.5 acres per hectare. Coral reefs, they're disintegrating. They're turning white. They're turning white. The Great Barrier Reef because of the raising of the, uh, the surface temperature. Acid rain, population, more than 80 million people enter the world each year. The wanton destruction of human life. You, you, add, you add to that the wanton disavowal of divine lordship. You know, I'm thinking about the paganization of America. I'm, I'm concerned, as you are, with this election coming up about the religious right. I don't want to get off into politics right now. I am concerned about it. But I tell you what, the Christians in America have reason to be alarmed. There is a paganization going on, and the media and the entertainment industry are all contributing to that paganization. There is no question. You have to be stupid to not see it. It's, going, it's, just, it's a moral dumbing down of America. 
And it's happening in Australia. Last Saturday night, they called, this is, this is the world's largest, most debased Mardi Gras celebration on the planet, and it takes place in Sydney. They flew from all over the world. They were on the plane with us. And it's covered by television. It's just raucous, human, a debauchery. And they, they covered it live on Australian television and played it back the next night, Sunday night. So we're in a hotel Sunday night. We turned it on and saw it. We, we had to turn it off. You can't watch this stuff. Call in the next day we heard it on the news. People calling. Why did you play this? The paganization of the world. The, there's no question. Darkness is trying to consume this planet. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to know that it is midnight. The cry is soon to go forth. Behold, the bridegroom cometh. Charles Colson. Somebody came to Charles Colson. You know who Charles Colson? Remember Richard Nixon? Part of the, the, the team that got in trouble. He ended up in jail. Uh, a Christian evangelical leader now. Charles Colson. Colson ranting and raving against the, the, you know, the moral debauchery in America. Somebody came to him and said, hey, why do you keep doing this? He said, well, I'm like the man standing outside of Sodom. People came to him and said, why do you keep yelling and yelling and yelling? You think you're going to change the city? No, he said, I keep yelling so that it won't change me. That's what the church is for. Keep yelling so it won't change us. That's why I keep bringing it up. It's midnight. The cry is soon to go forth. Behold, the bridegroom cometh. And I'm telling you, when that cry goes out, it's too late. You either have the oil or you don't. You either are ready or you are not. I'm not trying to frighten you. I'm trying to... This is a dose of reality time. You've got to be prepared. Midnight. We're living in midnight. I got a letter yesterday. I want to read this to you. Might make more sense in second service. Dear Pastor, I'm sure you received several letters like this one, but I just want to quickly tell you how much I've appreciated the subject of the sermons this quarter. Every Sabbath in this Holy Spirit series, I've been wondering what else the Lord would impress us to share in the Scripture. But frankly, for the past month or so, these studies have been explosive dynamite. They have helped me realizing our call as Christians, and the seriousness of our Lord's soon return. Every week, life gets harder and harder. But when I reach the end of the week, your, those sermons are the Lord speaking to me. I continue to pray that the Lord will guide you and us in this difficult task of leading a college community to Christ. Thanks again. Signed, a 17-year-old kid. No name. A 17-year-old kid. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to know we are living on the doorstep of eternity. And I thank God for kids that see it. I'm banking the future of the church on the young. And where is the church in this darkest hour? Where are we? Do we still sleep? Do we hear anymore the sobering but passionate appeal of God through Paul? I'll tell you what, these words were written for us. Romans chapter 13. Take a look at this. Romans 13, verse 11. Besides this, you know what time it is, how it is now the moment for you to wake from sleep. Wake up. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we became believers. When did you become a believer? Put that screen back. When did you become a believer? A week ago, a month ago, a year ago? I'm telling you what, if it was 40 years ago, we are closer today. We are closer today to final liberation, final deliverance from this planet than when you first believed. Salvation is near to us than when we first believed. The night is far gone. This is written to a church that sleeps in the middle of the night. The night is far gone. The day is near. Let us then lay aside the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us live honorably as in the day, not in reveling and drunkenness, not in debauchery and licentiousness, not in quarreling and jealousy. Instead, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Oh, my.
you know, that, that, that gathering last, uh, <clears throat> last Saturday night in Sydney is the world's largest demonstration of gay and lesbian support. The world's largest, hands down. They come from all over the world for that night. Ironically, before Lent is to begin, the church gives license to one last fling before we begin to fast and pray. That we got Mardi Gras. I know it happens in New Orleans. It's even bigger in Sydney. You know what? God loves every... I, I was looking at that parade. I said, God, Jesus died for every single man and woman and boy and girl lined up by the thousands on that parade. He loves them just as much as He loves me, just as much as He loves you. The issue is a passion that longs to set hearts free. Paul ends up this life, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. God can give the deliverance. He can give the power. He can give the victory. He can give an overcoming, cutting-edge kind of life. But if this planet is embraced in darkness and continues to embrace the night, it will be lost. Lost! There's no argument. There's no logic. There's no, there's no smooth, sophisticated way to talk ourselves out of it. I like how J.B. Phillips translates that last line. Let us be Christ's men and women from head to foot. Isn't that good? Or Eugene Peterson in the message. Dress yourselves in Christ and be up and about. My friends, it is time to burn the midnight oil. It's high time. I can't forget these dramatic words. I carry them in the cover of my Bible on a little post-it. So I'm going to read it right out of this little post-it I have in my Bible. I'll put the words up on the screen for you. Being in the position... These were written back in 1890, these words. Being in the position that we are... We need to be wide awake, wholly devoted, wholly converted, wholly consecrated to God. But we seem to sit as though we were paralyzed. Emphasis mine. God of heaven, wake us up. A passionate little woman who looked at the journey left and wondered how will the church survive asleep. God of heaven, she cried out, wake us up. My friends, it is high time to burn the midnight oil. And from whence cometh that oil? Oh, isn't this beautiful? Jot this verse down. John chapter 3, verse 34. Speaking of Jesus, God whom God has sent, that's Jesus. He whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he, Jesus, gives the Spirit. How does he give the Spirit? How's it read it? How does he give the Spirit? With out measure. He holds back nothing. He gives the Spirit without measure. I'm telling you, that is absolutely glorious. Isn't that promise? Don't you want the Spirit without measure? Do you want the Spirit of Christ in your life without measure, without any reservation? Do you want it? There is one person who can give it. He gives the Spirit without measure. Acts of the Apostles, let's take a look at this. Page 50. If all were willing... All would be filled with the Spirit. Whenever the need of the Holy Spirit is a matter little thought of, there is seen spiritual drought, spiritual darkness, spiritual declension and death. Whenever minor matters occupy the attention, I want to remind you, my friends, what gets your attention gets you. What gets your attention gets you. What has your attention these days? Is it minor matters? Give me a break. Are you really being consumed? by minor matters. Whatever gets your attention gets you. Whatever, whenever minor matters occupy the attention, 
the divine power which is necessary for the growth and prosperity of the church and which would bring all other blessings in its train is lacking, though offered in infinite plentitude. Since this is the means by which we are to receive power, why do we not hunger and thirst for the gift of the Spirit? Why do we not talk of it? Why do we not pray for it? Why do we not preach about it? Give me oil in my lamp. Keep me burning. Give me oil in my lamp, I pray. Why don't, we, why don't we pray? Why don't we ask for the Spirit? Ask, Jesus said, and you shall receive. And He gives the Spirit without measure. How can you miss? Look at that. Ask and you shall receive. He gives the Spirit without measure. How can we go wrong by asking? Give me oil in my lamp. Keep me burning. Keep me burning to the break of day. When we pray that prayer, we are praying for the Spirit. And my friends, I remind you at the close of this millennial series, the second coming of the Holy Spirit, when we pray for the Spirit, we are asking for the Lord Jesus Himself. We're not asking for some little magical entity. We're asking for Christ in the fullness. We're saying, Jesus, fill me with you. The reality of that truth came sweeping over me at a recent prayer conference I attended in Modesto, California. I want to end with the story. The young preacher up front was leading us in a season of prayer. Happened to be a former intern of mine out in uh, East Salem, Oregon. His name, Kevin Wilfley. As Kevin was guiding this prayer conference congregation of 600 in that sanctuary through a corporate seeking after God, we're all on our knees. He said, okay, now you can, you can pray. We'll have microphones for you to pray. You can sing. We'll sing. Every now and then, his beautiful tenor voice would break out into a song and on our knees we would join in that singing. I'm telling you, I've been in many prayer experiences, but this is one of the most moving. To listen to that many people kneeling in prayer and singing their hearts out to the God of heaven, interspersed with the singing, personal petitions. But I will always remember the moment when Kevin in that tenor of his began to quietly sing, Jesus, Jesus, oh Jesus, there's just something. You remember that song? About that name. He just started, and the whole audience, 600 strong, just started singing. At that moment, as we joined our hearts in that uplifted praise and prayer to Jesus, I'm telling you the truth, it, it just felt as if the Spirit swept down over me, over that place. My heart skipped a beat. My eyes welled up with tears as it suddenly hit me. This is the truth about the Spirit. Whenever He shows up, whenever He comes down, He always brings to the waiting heart the sense of the presence of Christ. You never sense, oh, the Spirit. You always sense, oh, Jesus is here. I could sense, it was palpable in that room. I heard a young man this last Friday night in Sydney stand up before the audience before I got up to preach and testify to finding Jesus while watching Net 98 on the screen. He had been steeped in the Eastern religions. But as he listened to that particular lecture that evening, something told him that this truth about Christ was just that. It was truth. And so he was worried that maybe there was some sort of cultist manipulation going on in the room. And so he decided to speak the words internally. I accept the Christ teaching and I internalize it now. The moment in, he spoke those words internally, in that instant, a feeling of love and joy welled up within him as he had never experienced in his life before. He said, I've never felt that sense of being loved as I felt that moment. He said, there's something, something might be going on here. So when the meeting was over, he went back to his flat 
as he called it. He went back to his apartment, sat there and said, okay, I'm going to do it again now. Nobody here to manipulate. I'm going to say the same words in my mind. I accept the Christ teaching and internalize it now. In that instant, the identical feeling of love and joy swept back over him. And he knew that there was a Christ in this universe who had just communicated with him. He was baptized three weeks ago and shared his testimony with all of us last Friday night. I'm telling you what, my friends, Revelation 18.1, that has been our theme text for this journey. It's already, already beginning to come true. And I saw another angel come down from heaven having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. That glory is spilling out. God can't keep it. It's coming through the cracks of God's hands even as the winds are slipping through the hands of those four angels. So the glory of God is slipping into this dark and abandoned planet. I tell you the truth, when the Spirit comes down and when the Spirit is poured out, it is always the presence of Jesus that He brings. This is precisely why the prayer that we sing, give me oil in my lamp, really is the prayer, give me Jesus. Give me Jesus is the prayer that we must pray right now. That beautiful prayer is found in your hymnal, number 305. We're going to sing this short prayer through. I want to make an altar call right now. If there's a man here, if there's a woman here, if there's a young adult here who has never come to the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm telling you, this is your day. You today may come to Jesus. I want to invite you to come out of that pew and come here to the front. You're listening on the radio right now. You just raise your hand to Jesus. There's nobody in the room but you. You just raise your hand to Jesus. Like that young man, you can say, Jesus, I accept you as Lord and Savior, and He will embrace you. There's a man or woman, a young person here today who has not accepted Jesus. It would be a sin to come to the end of this sermon and not give you an opportunity to respond. You're in the balcony, you're outside in one of the rooms, you're here. I'd like to invite you to come forward as we sing. I'd also like to invite uh, a man or a woman here who knows, you know, I, I have got to get serious about Jesus. I have not been serious about Jesus. I, I want to pray this prayer. And I want to publicly testify that I'm asking Jesus to have full lordship in my life. Jesus says, you confess me before others. Be assured, I'll confess you before the Father. My sir, madam, I want you to come forward. It'll be good for your soul. We'll pray together, then we'll go home.